So Matthew 13, verse 33. And while you turn there, I'm just going to pull the whiteboard over just in case. I don't think I'll need it, but you never know. So let me pull this over here. <clears throat> I know it's USC spring break week. Angela and Ryan and Emily went with them. They're in Connecticut, even though they don't go to USC, but uh, just happen to be on USC spring break. So, um, But let me uh, do one thing on here. If it'll work, let's see. Our keyboard is making a little white noise sound. There we go. None of y'all probably even heard it, but that's going to drive me crazy. So, um, okay, uh, Matthew 13, hopefully you're there. That's the first book in the New Testament, and uh, verse 33. So I'm just going to read it, and then we'll talk about it. Very familiar, um, but this is where we are today. So he, Jesus, told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed in with three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. Let me read the alternate translation of this. Let me read it one more time. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. Let me point out a few things in this passage, and then we're actually going to jump to Esther, and I'm going to make a connection I don't think anybody's ever tried to make, so, um, but it's going to be good. Uh, kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of God. So just to review, if you know this already, um, because the name of God was seen as so holy, you shouldn't say it to the Jewish people. Um, Matthew, the writer of Matthew, Matthew, it's possible it was originally written in Hebrew, um, writes the kingdom of heaven rather than what Mark, Luke, and John say, which is the kingdom of God, um, not because they're two different things or not even because Matthew's talking about distant heaven. is simply to say the kingdom of heaven is a way of saying the kingdom of God without saying the name God. So just so we're clear, it's the same thing. Um, now, yeast, if you didn't know, is a leavening agent that is highly concentrated so that a small amount causes dough to rise and expand. That's what yeast is. So um, mixed in right here, and I read the alternate translation, but just to say this again, the alternate translation, which I personally like better, is when he says this, uh, the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until all of it was leavened. And I like that because the idea that you have is, um, the, the batch of dough doesn't even know it's there until the entire thing is affected by it. Isn't that, I mean, that's so cool to me. So I just love how Jesus kind of plays on some words here. Um, now, let me, let me point something out. Something that's really odd in this is the fact that Jesus uses this three measures of flour. I don't know if you read, like when you read scripture and you hit stuff like that, it's okay to be like, wait a minute, that's weird. You know what I mean? Like, of course, growing up, we, that was, you know, you don't just trust it. It's like, yeah, but I don't know what it means, you know? Um, the, anytime in Scripture that you see this alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword, et cetera, et cetera, when you see something that is like, man, that's odd, you need to stop and say, why is that odd? Because there is some good stuff right there in these odd places, okay? So three measures of flour is very oddly specific. Why not two? Why not ten? Why not three? You know what I'm saying? It is three, so that was, you know. Um, but it's a really odd 
measurement. And you could say the cop-out is, well, three is really significant in the Bible. It's the number of perfection. It's the number of Trinity. You got to remember, though, um, when Matthew is writing this, of course, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, all that stuff. But the doctrine of the Trinity wasn't even a doctrine when Matthew's writing the gospel. So even if they believed, you know, Father, Son, and Spirit are all one and the same, um, it's not likely that Matthew's writing that Jesus said three pointing to the Trinity. Now, Jesus could have been, but Matthew's pointing to something even more specific. So you could cop out and say, well, it's three, it's the number of perfection, it's the number of the Trinity, it's the number of days till Jesus is resurrected, and, you know, all that other stuff. But if you do a little more work and you look a little deeper into the writing of Matthew specifically, you'll see something really interesting. So let me, let me read this. This is in Matthew's genealogy. You don't have to turn there. You can just listen to it. And this is, I'm going to just read a, a few verses in the genealogy, the first people that he lists, okay? Starting in verse 2, Matthew 1, verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. So let me write this down, actually, so you see these. Okay? Now, by the way, in genealogies in this time, it is extremely odd to have a woman named in a genealogy. Now, of course, today, that's not the case. But back then, the fact that a woman was named in a genealogy was really significant. In fact, women in the account of the Gospels um, are one of the primary proofs of their legitimacy. The fact that Jesus was first seen by women is one of the main proof, proofs that we have that that story is legitimate. Because if you're writing a fake you know, story of this man who had died and risen again, you would not make women the ones that found him or else, because women and a, um, an account from a woman in this day and age, and I put that emphasis because again, we're not like this today, but in this day and age was not reliable. That's just, that was just the culture. So the fact that the writers are writing that these women were not only the first to see him, but they were the ones commanded to go tell the disciples that he had been risen is part of the legitimacy of the story. So just so you know, that has nothing to do with anything. But in this account, I'm going to write the women down. So first, it's Tamar. Okay? And if you know the Old Testament, she's pretty significant in one really, really odd story. But anyway, Tamar and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Aram, and Aram, the father of Amenadab, and Amenadad, the father of Nashon. I promise there's a point. I'm almost done. And Nashon, the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. So number two. It's getting odder by the minute because now there's multiple women here. Okay? And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse, the father of David, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, who was, anybody guess? Anybody know? Bathsheba, thanks. Good job. Bathsheba. Okay. So you have four women in four verses of the genealogy. Odd. You know what I mean? And like I said, I know that for us that doesn't seem like anything, but for this day and age, that is a really, really odd thing for Matthew to do. But here's what's interesting, okay? Bathsheba in, uh, I think it's 2 Samuel and 1 Kings. I think I, maybe I wrote it down somewhere. 
because uh, I want to tell you correctly. Yeah, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings. Um, in the stories of Bathsheba, the two accounts, uh, her name is Hebrew in the original text, which is probably the reason it's Hebrew is to say she was an Israelite. Okay, so Bathsheba is an Israelite. But Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth are all Gentiles. These three are all Gentiles, okay? So what is Matthew trying to say? Many scholars believe the fact that the women are listed here, okay? Because the men that were listed were Israelites. So Matthew inserts right here between Abraham and David, three Gentile women. What is Matthew trying to do? Or the writer of Matthew, what are they trying to do? They're trying to tell us that not only is Jesus and the gospel and the kingdom coming to the Israelites, and if you notice, too, when you read that, it doesn't mention Bathsheba by name. We know Bathsheba's name. It says the wife of Uriah. So the only three women that are named are the Gentile women. What is Matthew trying to say? That the gospel is not just for the Israelites. Now it's for the Gentiles. And if it's for the Israelites and the Gentiles, who's it for? The whole world. Okay? So you do a little bit of digging when you see something that's odd and you start to see things really significant. And Matthew, I, I, won't, get real, I won't get into this at all, um, but if you study Matthew any deeper, Matthew uses this triad many different times to point to many different things. So it's, it's really interesting. Um, but it is, it is notable that the women are listed, and not only are they listed, but they are Gentiles. And it's, the point is that the inclusion of the Gentiles is, is in the kingdom. So hiding yeast into three measures of dough could be, and I believe it highly likely is, a symbolic way of hiding it, the kingdom, in the earth or the creation. The fact that it's three measures of dough is the writer of Matthew, Matthew saying, quoting Jesus, that the yeast of the kingdom is hidden in the earth until what? Until all of it is affected. To leaven bread is to completely transform it. It's a slow process. I did a lot of studying for this because I've never leavened bread. So, um, so this is all study, not from experience. But to leaven bread is a very slow process. And the leaven, check this out. The leaven actually does its work before you see the dough physically rise. So what you see is actually a result of what has already taken place. So when you see dough begin to rise, what you're not seeing is the leaven is, I mean, the yeast is suddenly activated and now it's affecting the dough. When you see the dough begin to rise, the leaven has already completed its work. All right. This, this story is also found in Luke 13, 20 through 21. You can go back and read that. It's essentially the same story. Um, what happens when the leaven, or what is supposed to be the leaven, becomes by choice the dough? That's meant to not make sense because I want to explain it. What happens when the thing 
that is supposed to be leaven becomes dough. In other words, what if the thing that you are supposed to transform transforms you instead? If that happens, and when it happens, nothing becomes what it is supposed to be. Dough without leaven is just a flat cracker, and leaven without dough isn't worth anything. But together they make bread. They become what they are supposed to be when they are put together. Now, here's the thing. I'll raise this up. Oh, Lord. All right, here's the thing. Here's leaven. Here's dough. Together, you have bread. Okay. Let's say, to use Jesus' parable, let's say that the leaven is the church. And the dough is, I don't like this language, but it's best we got, the world. According to the parable, the kingdom of heaven, which the church holds the keys to, is supposed to be, is designed to be hidden in the world until the world is completely transformed by the thing hidden in it. But the church can't do what it's supposed to do. And when I say the church, I mean me and you. The church can't do what it's supposed to do if instead of being leaven, the church has decided to become dough. In other words, we can't affect the creation that we're called to affect if we adopt the very makeup of the creation we're supposed to transform. We are the leaven. The world around us, bless you, is the dough. Likewise, the kingdom is within you, and that is the leaven, and you're being the dough. But for too long, we've traded our leaven for the dough of what's going on around us, and that's left the dough around us without the key ingredient it needs to be transformed into what it's supposed to be. This is what Romans 8, 19 and through 21 says that I quote all the time. All of creation is standing on tiptoe waiting for what? The manifestation of the sons and daughters of God. Why? Because with us, it will be set free from its decay. So the creation is not waiting for us to be relevant to it. The creation is waiting for us to become so pure in who we are that it dares the creation to become pure again in what it is. So in Genesis 3, in the, the quote-unquote fall, um, when that happens, mankind is not cursed. Go back and read it. There's not one part of that entire story where God curses mankind, Adam or Eve. But there is a curse, and he curses the ground. The world. Now, why would he do that? This isn't in my notes. Why would he do that? Why would he curse the ground rather than the ones who actually did the thing that's being cursed? Well, let me, Lord, help me right now. I'm already deviating so far. I don't know how I'm going to get back, but it's good. Um, Romans 5, let me just read this to you real quick, real quick, because I don't have a lot more. Therefore... 
Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all because all have sinned. Sin was indeed in the world before the law, but sin is not reckoned where there is no law. Yet death exercised dominion from Adam to Moses, even those whose sins were not like the transgression of Adam, who is a type and a shadow of the one who was to come. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through the one man's trespass, much more surely has the grace of God and the free gift of grace through the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So here's what he's saying. The ground was cursed. Why? So that when Christ became the thing that sent the ground into its cursed state, because the ground was cursed but not the man, the man could also be the one that set the ground free from the curse. And that's exactly what Paul says in Romans 5 happened, is that when Christ became flesh, He completed the work of setting mankind free from its sin so that the creation likewise could be set free from its sin. He says it like this in John 3, 17. I did not come to condemn the world. I came that through me the world might be saved. So what happens when we, and we're seeing this around us a lot, what happens when we, decide that we would rather be the dough than the leaven. What happens is nobody ever grows. Everybody stays flat. Christianity today is sort of like a country club. You find the one that you believe has the best amenities, you become a member, and you pay your dues. Right? I mean, is that you know what I'm saying? Right? That's why we don't have membership class, you know, because you ain't joining a country club. The goal, or evangelism, the goal is to get more members to join the country club. Have have you ever noticed? I've never been a part of a country club, but you know, have you ever noticed how country clubs kick people out who don't First off, who aren't members. But second off, let's say you show up and you're not dressed a certain way or you show up and you act a certain way that's not what they expect. Typically, you get kicked out, right? They have certain standards that you have to meet in order to be there and be a part of it. Sounds, sounds pretty familiar. Here's a background on uh, Paul and the heresy of his gospel so you know what we're talking about before we get into Esther. And the reason we're going to talk about Esther for a second is because tomorrow for the Jews starts uh, Padaram, which is a festival where they celebrate the, the freedom, the, the, uh, the saving of the Jews from the hands of Haman in the, in the book of Ruth. So um, I want to tie that together. But before I do, let me give you a background real quick on Paul and his gospel and how it was completely heretical. So I want you to just picture this for a second. Remember, Paul's gospel is Gentiles included. And we hear that so much that it doesn't, it's like, oh, that's great, whatever. I want you to think about this. On one side in Paul's day, you have the Jews. And the Jews believe that, A, this is the Shema. This is their, their everything for the Jews is, Behold, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. That, that's, if you're going to sum up Judaism in one thing, it's that. 
Behold Israel, Deuteronomy, the Lord your God is one. So they believe God is one. We also believe that. Of course, we believe it a little different. Um, and so they believe that the, the Lord our God is one. Not only did they believe that, they believe when the Messiah came that he would bring with him what they called, and they still call, is the Messianic age. Okay? And the Messianic age was defined by uh, complete Torah observance, first five books of the Bible, the law, complete observance of the law. Um, but here's what's really significant. They believe that all the enemies of God would be obliterated, would be annihilated, done away with, disappear. If you ask them, though, who are the enemies of God, do you know what they would tell you? The Gentiles. The Gentiles are the enemies of God and certain Jews that don't keep the law. So they believed that when the Messiah came, he would reign in this messianic age where all the Gentiles would be gone, done away with. So now you're kind of seeing why they were so ticked off, right? So that's the Jews on this side. Then you have the, Gentiles, the Romans, you know, the, 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 the kingdom of Rome on the other side, and they were polytheists, which meant they believed in many different gods. But the Romans, um, not only were they at odds with the Jews because of these, this you know, different belief system and all this other stuff, the message that Jesus and Paul and John the Baptist and the early church is, is teaching is a message of a kingdom, which for the Romans would be red, I mean, alarms, bah, bah, stop this. You know what I'm saying? If it's just, hey, we're just hanging out and we're just doing whatever, no problem. But when you start talking about a kingdom invading, huh? You know what I'm saying? So you have the Romans on this side who are trying to stop this because of this, this for them, very threatening language of a kingdom. And on this side, you have the Jews who want nothing to do with the Gentiles because they believe when the Messianic age comes that all the Gentiles, me and you, will be completely done away with. Now, here comes Paul, who is a Jew, preaching a message about a Jewish Jesus, and here's Paul's message to the Jews. Number one, Jesus is God. Huh? Because remember, behold, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. How does that work? Now there's a son. Now, of course, we have the doctrine of the Trinity where three and one, you know what I'm saying? But can you imagine, like for Jewish ears, we've been praying to one God, we've been doing things for one God, and now you're telling me that that man is also God? And Paul said, yeah, he's God. But not only is he God, he brought in the age of the kingdom. And they're looking around while people are getting beheaded. You know what I mean? The temple's being desecrated. Like the, king, the kingdom, hold on, not only that, the Gentiles are included. Hold on. And not only that, they don't have to keep Torah to be included. And not only that, they don't even have to be circumcised to be considered equal in Abraham's lineage to you. Now you can see why Paul was running for his life most of his life. You know what I'm saying? 
And then for the Romans, this group is growing and growing and growing and growing and growing, and that becomes a threat to the Romans. So Paul is standing in this in-between age, trying to teach the Jews that everything that they believe is off, and then trying to teach the Romans that this kingdom that's invading, you cannot stop. That, that takes some guts. And y'all think the message that we talk about sometimes is, you know, her, uh, heretical, her, heresy. You know what I'm saying? Holy Spirit heresy, you know, whatever, around here, right? No, I mean, this is, this is everything. So when you start talking about the church and you start talking about yeast, this is exactly what Paul and the early churches, they were small. The church in Corinth, the church in Colossae, the church to, uh, in Thessalonica, the Thessalonians, um, all of these churches, Philippians, all of these churches are small churches, tiny churches that don't exist today. Now, a bunch of other churches exist, including us. But, but we look at church and we judge success so often, and I know this is a, a, a review for a lot of us, so often we look at the church and we judge it based on the world's standard of what success is, which is big. No, the, the definition of the church is purity. That success is purity. That's it. No matter how big the leaven gets or how small the leaven gets, the success of the church is based on purity. And when that happens, suddenly the thing that a lot of people had decided we're going to become begins to be transformed simply by our purity being hidden in the batch. So when you go to work, when you go to school, when you're doing your thing and you go to a restaurant or a coffee shop or whatever, that is literally you being hidden in the dough. And the question is, is the thing that you are hidden in, is it being transformed because you're there? Or are we living in a way where we're trying to become the thing that we're really meant to transform. So let me ask you this, real deep, what does it mean to be human? Anybody got anything? This is review. What does it mean to be human? Genesis 1, let us make image and likeness. So what it means to be human at its core truth is to be image and likeness of God. Everybody cool with that? This is Bible. This isn't made up. The image of God. So, um, man, I can't skip this. In Genesis 1, Genesis 1 is most likely a temple text. It is a, uh, and you can go back and listen to all the messages I did about this. I'm not going to go too deep. Um, but in the ancient world, temples to gods, you know, were built and, you know, they would have something similar to the Holy of Holies. It was, of course, different. Anyway, long story short, when they would build these temples, they would build an idol, maybe made out of bronze, maybe made out of wood. Um, but it, they would take an image of whatever god that they worship and they would place that image in the temple and looking at that image was to evoke worship of whatever God that they were worshiping. So the writer of Genesis takes a very commonly known idea, which is a building of a temple 
There were thousands of foreign gods. And when he's saying, how can I describe how the relationship between God and man started? I know what I'll do. I'll write a temple text. But instead of building a physical temple, we're going to make the cosmos the temple that God is building. And on day six, what happens? Let us make mankind or humanity in our image and likeness to have dominion over everything. Which in temple text is we are the image that is placed in the temple to evoke worship of Yahweh. Huh? Right? Didn't learn that in Sunday school. And then on day seven, it says that God rested. Well, if you study ancient temple text, almost every one of them from ages either around this or before, when it, when it made the claim that the God filled whatever temple it was, the language it used was the God came to rest in his temple. This time on day seven, Yahweh, the one true God, comes to rest in his temple, which is the heavens and the earth. Is that not, is that not amazing? You know what I'm saying? It's how brilliant is the writer of Genesis 1 to say, I'm basically going to take every religion and in one chapter going to do this. That's essentially what he does. Or she, whoever wrote it. You know what I'm saying? In Genesis 1. Now, if that is who we are, which is the image of God, what's really interesting is that Hebrews 1.3 says of Jesus that Jesus is the exact image of God or the expressed image of God. So if to be human is to bear God's image and Jesus is the image of God, just as he is 100% God, he is therefore 100% human as well. Incarnation. Jesus is the image of God, Hebrews 1.3. Humanity is what? The image of God, which is why Psalm 8 calls us sons of God. Is this, are y'all good? So, what is true about humanity? Well, John 14, 6, and I quoted it earlier, Jesus says that he is the truth. Jesus is what is true about the image bearers. So Christianity, therefore, is not intended to be just a religion, Christianity is really intended to be a microcosm of what humanity is designed to look like. Jesus did not convert people to his new religion. Just read the God. Like, Jesus never converted anybody to anything. He didn't convert people to Judaism, and he sure didn't convert people to Christianity because Christianity didn't exist. Shock, shocker. You know what I'm saying? And it, people get even more shocked when you tell people that the New Testament didn't exist when they were doing the New Testament. You know what I'm saying? Early church exploded without the New Testament. So, Christianity, I know this is a very big statement, but I wanna, we got to think different. Christianity is intended to be a microcosm of humanity, not a religion. And if Jesus didn't convert people to his new religion, what did he do? He unveiled people's humanity because what is human? To bear the image and likeness of God. 
So when he looks at the woman that's about to be stoned and he says, neither do I condemn you, go and sin no more, he's restoring humanity to her, not converting her to a religion. Okay, so to be a Christian is really to be truly a human and vice versa. Think about this. Just going through the law. Um, You don't commit adultery. Why? Not because that's the rules to keep you in Christianity. You don't commit adultery because it's a really bad thing to do as a human. Do you see what I'm saying? I mean, I'm sure your spouse wouldn't be so excited if you go and commit adultery. And it's not because they're super devout Christians. It's because they know what it means to be a human. Another example. Um, You're called to... um, Next page. Let's talk about this. Why not? Abortion. Hmm? Which is really odd that that's such a weird thing in church. Not so many people support abortion in church. Um, so, um, so anyway, but think about this. Why is it a bad idea to kill babies? Is it because to do so means that you're a real, if you don't, if, as long as you don't kill babies, you're a great Christian? No, it's just because it's a bad thing to do. Murder's bad every time no matter what age, six months or 60 years. It's a bad thing. Okay, cheating. Um, Having more than one partner intimately is not just something that Christians should do, as we see in the world around us right now. This is something humans should do. I mean, you could go on and on and on and on and on. My point is, We will never be the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven if we don't embrace and honor what we are, which is concentrated kingdom leaven. But we're not just in this room to remain leaven. We're in this room to learn how to be so concentrated and pure that when we leave this room, the things out there become what is happening in this room. The 120 in the upper room were called to not leave until they received what they were promised. Don't go evangelize. Don't go reach your neighbor. I want you to sit right here and wait until you receive what I promised. So 10 days, they locked themselves in an upper room. The Holy Spirit falls and lo and behold, here's what happens. 3,000 people come to them. They don't even leave the upper room and 3,000 people join the movement. They don't go anywhere. They remain in the upper room and the purity of the fire that they carried because they were willing to sit and wait for it was so strong that people were drawn to it rather than them having to go out and be drawn to them. I'm not saying going out is a bad thing. What I'm saying is we focus so much on the going out that we've missed the thing that we're supposed to be, which is so pure in what is happening on the inside of us that it, it, it becomes a frequency the world can't ignore. You know what I'm saying? So when people look at your life, 
There should be something on you that causes them, without you even having to say anything, to look at you and say, I don't know what you got, but I need it. Now, all that being said, real quick, go to Esther 4. I'm going to read how this looks in action. Esther 4, I'm not sick. Usually people that have COVID drink body armors. I just like the way they taste. So just so nobody's afraid, I'm not sick. I'm just, I just like the way it tastes. So anyway, because um, the other day I was drinking one of these and somebody was like, hey, are you, you good? I was like, yes, that's just, I like them. So anyway, um, All right, Esther 4, let me give you the uh, run-up to Esther chapter 4. That way you know what's going on. After a 180-day celebration, that's half a year. Lord, that is a long celebration, okay? After a 180-day celebration, the king of the Persian Empire has a seven-day banquet to kind of wrap it up. During the banquet, everyone was drinking excessively, and this, this drunk king asked the queen to be brought to him. But the queen refused and was banished. Then, after that, a search is made for a new queen. And Esther becomes a part of that search. And ultimately, Esther's made queen thanks to Mordecai, um, the Jew who was a Benjamite, encouraging her as her cousin. And he tells her to hide her Jewish identity, okay? So then when Haman, who was the king's highest official, plots to kill all the Jews because they wouldn't bow down and worship him, the decree is made to carry it out. And we pick up the story here in Esther 4. So where we pick it up is Haman walks by the gates. The Jew refused to bow down and worship Haman. And because of that, he tricks the king into making a decree that all the Jews be killed. This goes out into all the provinces, and the time is coming very soon that every single Jew be killed because of this. At the same time, Esther has been made queen, yet the king doesn't know that she is a Jew. So this is where I pick the story up. And I'm just going to read this real quick. It's a very short chapter, um, but just let me read it, and then I'm almost done. Verse 1, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went through the city, wailing with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. In every province, wherever the king's command and his decree came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and most of them lay in sackcloth and ashes." When Esther's maids and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathok, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her and ordered her to go to Mordecai to learn what was happening and why. So Esther has no clue at this point. Hathok went to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Verse 8, Mordecai came to him, or excuse me, Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and charge her to go to the king and make supplication to him and entreat him for her people. Here's where it gets really good. 
Hathoth went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathoth and gave him a message from Mordecai, saying, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law. All alike are to be put to death. Only if the king holds out his golden scepter to someone, may the person live. I myself have not been called to come in to the king for 30 days. When they told Mordecai what Esther had said, Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, very familiar. Here we go. Do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all other Jews. I want you to hear the faith in this verse right here. For if you keep silence at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter or from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. Then Esther said in reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and neither eat nor drink for 30 days, night or day. I and my maids will also fast as you do. After that, I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther ordered him. Now we, and of course, the long story short, Esther goes to the king and Haman's eventually killed on the very gallows that he built for the Jews to be killed on, and the Jews are set free through Esther. Um, Esther's hiddenness gives her the authority to save an entire people group by her whisper to the king. This is literally a little leaven permeating the whole batch. Esther is Israel's greatest warrior of all time. More than David, more than any of the judges, Esther is the greatest warrior of all time, and she never at any point lifted a sword. Ever. David killed so many people that he wasn't allowed to build the temple. He had so much blood on his hands. Esther, without ever picking up a weapon, sets an entire people group free. Why? Because of her proximity to the inner courts of the king. Because of her hiddenness, an entire group of people were redeemed. And I just wonder, as we look at the world around us, as we look at all the stuff that's going on, if you still watch the news, which hopefully you don't, but if you do, um, I'm just playing. I mean, not really, you probably shouldn't watch the news, but if you still if you watch the news and see all this just stuff going on around us, all the fear, all the anxiety, all the worry. I mean, once we left COVID behind, something had to get people watching again, and so it became Russia, and then it became Ukraine, and now it's China, and now it's and then it's balloons, and now it's COVID again. I mean, but you know, fill in the blank, it's something. Something is going to get you afraid. So so you turn on the news, you can watch all this stuff happening, and you can respond one of two ways. And the, the church has pretty much chosen how to respond. But you can respond one of two ways. You can choose to respond and go along with all the stuff that's happening around us and become it. 
And when that happens, it never rises above where it is. Or you could become so pure in a place of hiddenness that your whispers to the king begins to bring order to the entire chaos and people group around you. And for decades, the church has made the decision to become the thing around us in order to transform the thing around us, which is odd, right? If you, I mean, just the most basic example of this is um, if you want to make a cherry pie, you have to have cherries and you have to have the pie crust. A lot of other ingredients too, but you know what I'm saying? But you got to have cherries. If you choose to throw the cherries away and instead just load up on a bunch of pie crust and throw it in the oven, guess what comes out the oven? Burnt pie crust. Surprise. You know what I'm saying? Hello. And this is what the church, we're going to become the world to reach the world. And then guess what happens? The church becomes just as much of the world as the people outside, the, outside of the church. And nobody's transformed, inside or out. Instead, what if we said we're going to be the cherries that when mixed in with the dough and put in the oven and heated up, it's going to come out exactly what it's supposed to be, which is simply a cherry pie. You know what I mean? So Aristotle, who I disagree with on most things, but, um, you know, because he was a Greek philosopher, and y'all know me what I think about Greek philosophy, but there's a few good things. Um, All truth is God's truth, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. So anything that's true is God's. But anything that's not true is not God's. But um, Aristotle said this, and I shared this with a few of you. The, The goal of ethics, and ethics is simply... Uh, the, the way that the thing that governs how you live your life. So all of us have live a certain ethic. We have a certain way of thinking, a certain way of doing things, and whatever governs that is your ethic. Okay, so that's what ethics means. And Aristotle said, the, the goal or the aim of ethics is also the means. I'm gonna explain this. What he's saying is the way that you get to where you're going is actually through where you're going. Let me say it like this. We're a church that aims at being a place of presence. So how do we get to being a church that is a place of presence? Presence, right? How do we get to the globe being transformed into the kingdom of God? we in here being transformed into the kingdom of God. And our transformation will be the means by which, Romans 8 says this, our transformation will be the means by which the entire batch is permeated and transformed. Is it, so, so we thought that evangelism was us going out, which I'm not saying it's not, But the greatest evangelism that you and me could do is becoming the thing that we're trying to evangelize other people into. I mean, you know what I mean? How do you get somebody to be set free in the truth of the gospel? First and foremost, you being set free in the truth of the gospel. You know what I'm saying? 
Like even on little things, as a pastor, I have to live this because even on a, on a smaller level, I can't preach to you guys stuff that I'm not living in. I know a lot of people try to do that. I, I can't. You know what I'm saying? So sometimes I might be too vulnerable. Sometimes I might say things that you're like, I don't know about that. And honestly, that's fine, but I've got to lead you where I am. And I can only lead you where I am. So when we talk about things like prayer, well, I can't encourage you to be people of prayer if I'm not a person of prayer. It's, that's the means by which the ethic is created. We can't be people of worship if I'm not a person of worship or whoever else is up here. I can't encourage you to give if I'm not first going ahead of you in giving. Do you see what I'm saying? Same thing with our church. But we have got to, to switch this narrative, because we've been talking about wholeness, and I'm almost done, Isaiah, you can actually hop up here. We, we have been talking about wholeness, and I believe what the Lord wants to bring in in all of this is what it looks like for us together to be whole, for our church to be whole. And how that looks is not us getting what is out here, or excuse me, what's getting out here to look like us by what we say. What wholeness looks like is us becoming everything that we are and that being the witness that is the megaphone to the world that says you don't have to be like this anymore. So your family, the family that I'm praying for to come home, the way, the primary way they're gonna come home is to look at me and see home in my eyes. And it sounds backwards because there's nothing to do but to be surprise you ever notice that in the prodigal son story which we reference all the time that the father just knew that the son would come home he's not shocked he prepares a fattened calf for a year for his son to come home but in that story the father does absolutely nothing to get his son home except be present when his son decides to come home. Let me say it like this. His father remains rooted in home and his father's rooting in home becomes his son's call to come back. I want you to think, think about this. When we take communion um, at Easter, and we'll take it before then, obviously, but when we take communion, do you know the two elements that are used in communion typically? It's bread and it's wine, which are the two things that the key ingredient you need to make them is yeast. You cannot make wine without yeast and you cannot make bread without yeast. I guess you can make unleavened bread, but you know what I'm saying? The elements of what we take in order to honor the body of the Lord is the very thing he calls us to be. It's, I mean, huh? Isn't that cool? That this, see, this, this gospel, as I've said for years, is, is much better than we were ever told. But, but it is exactly, I can only speak for me, it's exactly what I hoped it would be. This, this is the story. So the church is not designed 
to be so religious that it converts people to Christianity. The church is designed to, within Christianity, be a witness to what humanity is. This is what it, Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is the first fruits of being fully alive in our humanity. Because what does it mean to be human? To bear the image of God. So Karl Barth says it like this in, in his uh, commentary on Romans 5. He says, Christians aren't the only ones who Jesus redeemed. Christians are the only ones living like they've been redeemed. Huh? Right? He says, humanity, because humanity is represented in the body of Christ. He, he became flesh. That is Sarks. It's human nature. He became human. And when he became human, every single thing that he did, he did as human. So when he dies and says it is finished, and when he rises again, he does it as humanity. The church becomes the first fruits of what it looks like to live in the finished work of Jesus. So you have all these doctrines that have been formulated to try to make the yeast simply the only thing that there is, like predestination. God's predestined a handful to be saved and the rest will be condemned to hell and those are the ones that Jesus died for. Right? Which is awful doctrine. That's why most people don't believe it. But, no, Jesus died and then Christianity is simply inviting people to discover what it means to be human. So when you come in the door, you're not coming to learn how to be a better Christian, you're coming to learn how to be a better human. Because to be human is to be Christian and to be Christian is to be human because to be human is to bear the image of God. And what does it mean to be Christian? To reflect the image of God. So now you look at the people around you and instead of feeling this burden to convert them to a religion, which they, I mean, you know, to be human, of course you're gonna be Christian, right? That's what I just said. But instead of feeling the burden to convince them that a certain religion is right and the rest of the religions are wrong, now you're approaching them and you're saying, you're human, just not living like it. You know what I mean? Because I think everybody agrees that they are a human which is an amazing starting point. Because then, what does it mean to be human? To bear the image of God. The image of God is somewhere on the inside of you. We're gonna get it out. This is what the cross is. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, right? It's him saying, looking at us and not saying, man, you are beholden to the doctrine of original sin. You are evil, you are separated from God, but if you repeat a prayer, you'll come back. It's dumb, okay? No, what, what God is doing in Christ is he's looking at us in our rejection, in our sin, in our running, and he's saying, this is not who you are. And if it takes me becoming you and dying as you and rising as you to prove that this is not who you are, whatever it takes for you to come home, I'm willing to do it but the way that we have done this for so long is to call people to become stuff that we're not even convinced we are. You know what I mean? We've wanted people to join a Christianity that we're not even convinced about for the most part. And the reason we're not convinced about it is because most of us never grew up in a space where we went any deeper than salvation. You know what I mean? 
We grew up about that. We heard the stories about the flood. We, you know, with the little, with the little felt, you know, boards. We heard the story about Abraham, maybe. We heard the story about Jesus, but the story about Jesus we heard was we were awful. God was ticked. Jesus stepped in and said, please, God, don't kill them. Kill me instead. And Jesus died and praise God we lived for now. You know what I mean? That's, and that's what we were told. That's the God. That's, that's the gospel. Well, good Lord, if that's good news, help us. You know what I'm saying? That's what gospel means. Good news. Now, here's the good news is that Christ did something on a molecular level of the identity of the human nature. And now the call is not for you to join a new country club. The call is for you to be what you are. And that's why evangelism should be the easiest thing we do. We're not telling people to change. We're telling people to be what they really are that they're refusing to live in. Do you see the difference there? It's like going to my daughter who believes with beyond the shadow of a doubt that she's not our daughter. How easy would it be to go to her and convince her that she actually is our daughter? Cut open, take some blood, take it to the doctor. Oh, yep, she's your daughter. Easy. That's what evangelism should be. Why is it not? It's because we focused on converting people to a religion. Christianity is not a religion. The church wasn't the ones that called themselves Christians. It was the people of Antioch who looked at this group of people who were so different than the culture around them that they had to give them a label which was Christian, which simply means Christ followers of Christ. There's actually, Christoph, there's another, uh, there's another way to say uh, Christian in the Greek. There's another um, a more derogatory way of saying it, and it's more related to uh, what a slave would be called, is another way. So, so the Antioch people, when they say Christian, they're not just saying they follow Jesus. They're saying those cuckoos are following this Jesus. It's really, that's really in the Greek, which is super ironic. You know what I'm saying? And kind of fitting sometimes. But, um, but you know what I'm saying? But it wasn't Paul going around saying, make everyone Christian. It was Paul going around saying, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There is all in Christ, one humanity. That was the message. You know what I'm saying? And for us, it's just a slight change because people will say, they'll either go to one extreme or the other. Either the church is the first fruits of what it means to be human, which means everybody can just do whatever they want and everybody's in and everybody's good and you just live your life. Or the other extreme is everybody's destined for hell except for the few that commit to the country club. That's your, that's your options today. Those are your two options. Everybody in hell or everybody in heaven except for a handful. And th- None of this is about any of that. This is about the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. This is about the earth being transformed into what it is, which is the temple of God. And me and you placed in that cosmic temple as the image that the entire ground creation can look to and say, that is what God looks like. Right? I see a lot of people's world spinning. See your head spinning. But I want you to understand what I'm saying today is just a a slight shift 
from us trying to be relevant to the world to if we could hold ourselves at such a standard that we should hold ourselves to, the world's going to start to look at us and say, what do we need to do to be like that? It's not how do we become relevant to the world. It's how does the world become relevant to what's in us? We're free. So I'm not going to look like slavery in order to set people free. I'm going to look like freedom in order to dare people in slavery to become free. So y'all go ahead and bow your heads and I'm going to pray and then we'll, uh, we'll wrap it up. Lord, I pray today that you would just, would you just change this slight thing on the inside of us that when we, for so many years, talk about going out into the world, we, we've just, we've had this, this mindset that we are ambassadors of a religion, not a kingdom. And we're ambassadors of a kingdom that of the increase, Isaiah says, of the government and peace of this kingdom, there will be no end. The vision that we see in the Old Testament in Habakkuk of the glory of the Lord covering the earth as the waters cover the sea that we see of all nations. This is, is this not what Paul says? That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Paul's view, Jesus's view, John the Baptist's view, Peter's view, James's view, John's view, all of the early church sent out this message that was, find what it means to be the image and likeness of God. And it was so crazy. It was so other than that it eventually was given a label by those that weren't even in the movement, Christianity. But make no mistake, none of the New Testament talks about building up a new religion, starting up a new religion to worship a new God. This is nothing new. This is on day one of creation, this was there. It's always been this, the most natural thing for anyone on planet earth is to worship Yahweh and to bear his image. And somewhere along the way, we begin to fog that image with sin and with lust and with greed and with fear. But, but nevertheless, Though the mirror is fogged, the mirror is still there. And our call is to simply help with a rag and a servant's heart to go up to our people around us and clean their mirror off so they can see the image that they've been bearing all along. So God, we just pray. That's what we pray in Revelation. When the spirit and the bride say, come. That, that is the prayer. It's the prayer that you would come and make your reign in us and through us and on us so that the entire world may be not just transformed, but that they may be known how loved they are of the Father. This is love. This is how we know what love is. 
that you loved us first. So we honor you today. We thank you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.